This podcast is underwritten in part by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible with General Editor D.A. Carson, the only study Bible built on biblical theology, inviting you to marvel at the big story as you savor each detail. The website is whatisbiblicaltheology.com. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm Carl Truman, uh, professor at Grove City College, here with my my two colleagues, uh, Todd Pruitt, pastor of a PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, down in the beautiful Blue Ridge Uh Mountains, uh, Shenandoah Valley, I think, Shenandoah Valley, Blue Ridge Mountains on one side. Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia, by the Trail of the Lonesome Pine. For, for you Laurel and Hardy there aficionados you go. Oh, nice. Well done. In the pale moonshine, her hearts did twine. <laughs> she carved her name and I carved mine. Anyway, wow. and uh, my other co-host, Amy Bird, housewife, theologian, general layabout. We're uh, in beautiful uh, Frederick, Maryland right oh, now. Oh, yes, yeah, lives in beautiful Frederick, Maryland. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's a, a rather, lovely, lovely area. Uh, in fact, we now all three live in beautiful, beautiful areas, areas of the country. Western Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia. We're good. We're protesting against the city. We are. <laughs> we are not, we, we are not for the we're city. We're loving the countryside. Yes, <laughs> for, for the countryside. The country. Well, Carl, so, what are we talking about today? Well, we thought we'd address a, a topic that's a hot button issue, uh, not likely to go away in our lifetimes, I don't think, but to do so in a way that tries to eschew some of the the more vigorous polemics that are going on at the moment. We want to look at the issue of homosexuality, same sex attraction, but specifically from a pastoral perspective. What are the kind of things that as pastors or as Christian friends of those who may be facing this as an issue in their own lives, either for themselves or for a loved one, what are the things we should be uh, bearing in mind? How should we approach this subject? Todd, you're a pastor of a mega church. You must come across this on well, a fairly regular basis, I given do. the number of people at your church. Yeah, we, we do encounter this. From a pastoral perspective, first of all, it's a blessing and an honor and, a, and a, a sacred stewardship to get to minister to men and women who struggle with this particular sin, because it is a difficult uh, struggle. And so we take it seriously. And we have folks that, that are on different stages of, of the struggle, some who are well down the road of, of years of success, if you want to put it that way, and are striving joyfully and, and doing really well. Um, others uh, for whom the struggle is more intense and, and they're not as far down the road. And so we, we try to meet them where they are. I will say that the church needs to be very aware, even if you pastor a, a small church of 100 people or less, the chances are are very slim that you don't have someone in your church that struggles with this. And I think part of it owes to the fact that there's just a a tremendous amount of confusion in the culture. Children at very young ages are introduced to homosexual images and categories. 
and they are generally, I think, uh, more confused as a result of that. Um, so I don't think we should be surprised by the rise of those who identify themselves as homosexual or, or, or transgendered. So the church, you know, the Orthodox church that still holds the line on biblical sexual ethics obviously can't ignore the problem and they can't just merely be involved in polemics. They have to be involved in active ministry to help those who struggle with this sin uh, walk in holiness. And that's that's what we want. That's what we're talking about. How do we help folks who are struggling with this sin walk in holiness? There are ways, Carl, you mentioned on the more polemic end that might not be helpful. And then there are also ways on the other end of the spectrum that try to be winsome and understanding, but are equally as unhelpful. Um, Oftentimes, I heard uh, Rosaria Butterfield, who's been a guest on our program before, say recently that she's very thankful that her conversion happened when it did, because if she was going through the conversion process right now, given what now otherwise conservative churches and denominations are saying about things like sexual orientation, she said her conversion would have been much more difficult. Mm. Uh, I think that touches on an important point that on the one level, on one hand, we want to concede that the church has not always argued for the correct position on homosexuality in a correct way. Right. If I could put it that way, there's been a lot of uh, knee-jerk reactions to homosexuality yes. that are not ultimately rooted in biblical teaching. They they happen to come down on the right side right. of the question, but they're not argued particularly well or particularly soundly. Right. On the other hand, we need to be careful that we don't allow the egregiousness of such positions to create a situation where all we focus on is is the nuance. Mm. It's a complicated issue. It's an issue that requires nuanced thinking and nuanced parsing. And as with a lot of pastoral situations, almost every example you come across will be unique in certain right. in certain ways. But pastorally, one needs, I think, to make the position clear to begin with mm-hmm. and then add the nuances and the modifications later. Right. One should not start with the nuances and modifications mm-hmm. because then what you what you essentially do is is you sacrifice any hope of clarity right. to the death of a thousand qualifications. Right. And I think one of the the issues I have with with churches that are that are nuancing the situation is is I don't object so much to the nuances of what is a complicated issue. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that the nuances and the complications seem to overwhelm. Right. In such a way that clarity, all clarity is lost. And the bottom line is the Bible is pretty clear on this, (laughs) even though we want to, you know, in specific cases, be sensitive to nuances, complexities, complications. So, so for instance, uh, if you're in a in a setting and somebody asks you, okay, so, you know, do you believe that homosexuality is a sin? The point you're making, and I agree with it, is start out by saying, well, yes, it is a sin. Yeah. Now, let me explain why I think God identifies that as a sin yeah. and, and why it's good for us to affirm that and to hold that and then get into also then some of the complexities into how to minister to some of those people. But start with the, yes, of course, it is a sin and I can take you to the specific scriptures. Now, let's talk about how to understand that and, and why that's good and how to minister to folks who struggle with it. Yeah, I, I agree, because I've heard some some otherwise highly thought of men who are put in a position where they're in front of an audience and they're asked point blank, is homosexuality a sin? And it's like 
they're a deer caught in the headlights and they try to nuance not to alienate the audience and they end up giving a a, a really unhelpful answer because of that well i feel like some of that is due to the way that we have over stereotyped even heterosexual roles in the church maybe and so there is this need to step in with nuances in a lot of ways where people are coming in if they're struggling with same-sex attraction and everything they go to and i know even heterosexual singles complain about this a lot a lot with the biblical manhood and womanhood movement Mm -hmm. um you know this is what a biblical manhood is supposed to look like you're supposed to have you know sanctified testosterone and Mm -hmm. you be the hero and and all these different over stereotyped even leadership itself i think has been over masculinized Mm -hmm. and then you know women come in and we're told everything that we need to do to be the quiet wife and and mom okay and i so I, i feel like some of it is there's so much baggage attached to that word even when we talk about what's a sin and what's not a sin as far as just not fitting into that stereotype so i'm not not sure i'm following you are you saying that some confusion can come in in terms of our position on homosexuality that that confusion can come in when we talk about masculinity and Mm -hmm. effeminate and and femininity okay because like if a man were to have some qualities that we call feminine okay are we saying that that's a sin? Um, it could be. Like what? Well, um, it depends on on how you deal with some of the biblical language. So I would argue that a particular word that Paul uses does mean basically a feat or feminine. Now, different cultures may nuance that a bit differently, but I would say that there is a problem when a man adopts characteristics that are generally held or, or understood as as feminine you yeah, see when you say that like maybe we're kind of cross-talking here mm-hmm. but um i'm talking sensitivity okay you know traits that get assigned to women more right than men no, I'm, I'm pro i'm pro sensitivity I'm, yeah. su- I'm i'm super sensitive i'm not talking like somebody who wants to dress in women's fashion mm-hmm. or and, and I, w- I would things say like yeah, that yeah and what i'm saying is i think we can typically recognize behaviors that are generally associated with how god has created men and how god has created women and we want to help a brother who for whatever reason has adopted a, a more female outer persona i, I think we want to help that guy I mean, without getting too far off the subject here, I think that's a problem. Okay, I'm, I guess I'm, not, I'm going off the subject. I don't want to lose yeah. the subject here. Well, okay. let's, I mean, to bring it back then yeah. to the subject, let's think about the issue of sexual identity as a whole. It yes. seems to me mm-hmm. that one of the one of the problems pastors are going to face is that the the wider culture in which we operate, to some extent, sets the the framework for the sort of questions and problems that pop up in a pastoral context. And the issue of sexual identity, the idea that sex is something you are, not something that you do, is both, I think, alien to the Bible and a relatively modern innovation, I think sort of late 19th century. Freud would be the obvious mm-hmm. candidate for a, uh, the rogue on this one. But, of course, Freud doesn't come out of a vacuum. There are, there's all kinds of stuff going on in Vienna in the late mm-hmm. 19th century. But, but, you but, would, but would you say that sexual orientation as a category 
would have been unheard of or, or at least uh, not not well articulated prior to the 19th century i think yeah the latter i think to say that it isn't there at all I, I, as a historian i'm always hesitant to say it isn't, sure, it sure. isn't there and, you know reading if you read rousseau's confessions he has uh, a few encounters with homosexuals in, in rousseau's confessions and he seems to have some sort of category for that if you go back to ancient greece uh, homosexuality seems to be more of a phase people mm-hmm. go through mm-hmm. it doesn't have quite the same all embracing that that a person is 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 born and assigned a particular orientation it doesn't have the sort of the 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 powerful grip on the imagination mm-hmm. that it does in the present day yeah. um and you know intellectually one can find the roots of that in psychoanalysis i think in popular culture i'd have to say pornography probably mm-hmm. plays a significant Definitely. role in the popularizing of that yes. idea because it has a decent app, I read the Daily Mail on my phone. So when I was growing up, the Daily Mail was a very conservative newspaper, mm-hmm. sort of verging on the tabloid. But even the Daily Mail now, a lot of its headline stories are to do with sexual activity and right. sex. It, it's become all pervasive in our culture. And sexual identity now grips the popular imagination in a way that I think is unprecedented in history. And that, of course creates a number of pastoral problems. One, uh, if if single people are living in a world where they're constantly being told that their humanity is completed by sexual activity because their identity is fundamentally as sexual beings, how do you pastor single people? Mm-hmm. How do you encourage them to remain chaste and, and, and celibate? And I think it spills over into the, the gay issue. And, and there we're then faced with the problem that you're trying to get the Bible to answer questions that are based upon concepts that you don't find in the Bible. Mm-hmm. There's a conceptual translation that has to go on in order to get answers from the Bible on questions of sexual identity because the Bible doesn't recognize right. sex as an identity as such. So th- there's quite a lot of heavy-duty work that's got to be done conceptually to get the Bible to answer these questions. And this brings me back to the point I made earlier that pastorally, the first thing I think you need to do is be clear on the issue, and then you need to wrestle with these, the nuances and the complexities of the question afterwards, because the last thing that somebody who comes into into the pastor's study or office and saying, you know, I'm same-sex distracted, what do I do about it? The last thing they want is a load of qualifications Mm -hmm. that... Uh, appear to lift the burden off their shoulders, but actually just make the situation far more complicated. Yeah, I've I've found that as a pastor, um, people who are struggling with this sin want clarity. They really do want clarity. Yeah. And if we don't give them clarity where the scriptures do give us clarity, then we've, we've not served them well. I would also say, and I think Paul gets at this in Romans 1, there are things that we can observe in nature. Paul refers to homosexuality as unnatural. And so I, I think that we can appeal not only to what the scripture says directly about homosexuality, but also what we observe in nature. And I think that this goes back also to us having a really good creational theology. Yeah. One could almost nuance what you'd said there, though, right, to introduce nuance. Sure. But you say, you know, Paul uh, you know, says homosexuality is sinful. I think Paul says homosexual activity. Mm-hmm. is sinful it's mm-hmm. an activity right. thing right. in paul's right. mind yeah, it, uh, they don't ha- there's yeah. not and i think for good reason there's not a concept that it should be considered as a human identity and yet even in the church and even you know I, I, we have a conversation in, in my denomination going on right now 
over the status of sexual orientation. Is there such a thing as sexual orientation? We seem to be just accepting it as a given uncritically. And then is there a moral status to sexual orientation or does that moral status only belong to particular actions? And that's where a big part of the debate is right now. And so you have some in my denomination that are saying, quote, you can't repent of an orientation and others who are saying, listen, any kind of temptation towards or attraction to homosexuality comes out of a place of sin. And we recognize that sin is not just volitional actions, but the bent of our heart as well. Yeah. People are making very fine distinctions when they're trying to mm-hmm. you know, isolate an orientation from the realization of that right. orientation. Right. You know, homosexual, heterosexual orientation are ultimately defined by what you lust after or who mm-hmm. you desire to have sexual activity with. And Christ makes it very clear in the Sermon on the Mount that the man who looks at a woman lustfully has sinned. All right. Right. You know, before the eyes of God, he's as unholy as a man who's committed adultery. Same surely applies to mm-hmm. those who lust after men. And if you factor the lust factor out, then I'm not sure that I actually understand what you mean when you say orientation. Right. To what are you referring at that point? Mm-hmm. Is it simply the naked will theoretically considered? In which case, one would have to say, well, no will ever exists nakedly, merely in theory. It always has a particular moral character Mm -hmm. to it. And part of my confusion, again, with that fine distinction that folks are trying to make between a homosexual orientation and homosexual lust is, well, if you can have a non-sinful orientation towards a member of the same sex and it's non-sinful well how is that different from just a good friendship you see what i'm saying mm. <laughs> but, but they're clearly saying it's more than that mm. and, and if it's more than that how does that not have a romantic how is that different from heterosexual it's, friendship like how's that different from just regular friendship yeah i i don't understand i don't understand the distinction between wanting to hold to a a morally neutral or morally good homosexual orientation that does not involve lust. I, I don't understand the distinction and how and how the former can be distinguished between, you know, a good friendship. But yet those who are advocating this are saying, well, no, it's, it, it is more than that. I just don't know how that becomes non romantic non yeah like i wonder where the struggle is and and how you would pastorally address the struggle with maybe those who want to be upfront about what they struggle with Mm -hmm. you know and so they don't want to hide that from others and, and that can be an honorable thing you know sure um but even in heterosexual friendships you know you have to recognize orienting your your feelings correctly where you need to mortify sinful thoughts you know and offer that to the lord and that's a step there if you're having sinful thoughts even if i'm not even talking about friendship i know in my own mind you know sometimes i can be a horribly critical judgmental person and a thought will enter my mind about somebody mm-hmm. and and all of a sudden i mean i could be driving in my car and think Lord, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for having such an awful thought about this person that, you know, it's not sexual. It's just, and so I ask for forgiveness for that. And please help me, Lord, with my heart in this issue because it's horrible. So I I think that's a good comparison. So if I'm looking at myself, I can say, you know, I have a critical orientation Uh 
and I would never call that morally neutral. Right. Like I, I, I want to, <laughs> I want to mortify that, exactly. and I want to be loving. Right. You know. Yeah. So like my critical My critical orientation has a has an inescapably sinful bent that I have to to mortify mm-hmm. and i've hurt myself and i've hurt others because of this right and even if they never know like mm-hmm. but see, right. then that's something like i don't want to say oh i just had this horrible thought about you yeah exactly yeah, <laughs> just, yeah, like, yeah you really judged you that. in a horrible way yeah you, you but, deal with uh, that between you and god because that's where because the sin occurred well before any right. kind of an action but or i do or feel word. like i need to like confess that to the lord sometimes and, you know and, and ask for forgiveness there and and plea for god to help me in that area mm-hmm. because then you're you can't be a loving friend mm-hmm. until you do those kind of things. Right. And it would be unhelpful for me as someone who has a critical orientation to call myself a critical Christian. That would be unhelpful because I don't want to take mm. that on. I don't want that to be who the essence that, yeah. of who I am. Right. And, and in my mind, what will happen is if I begin naming myself that way, I will inevitably begin to lean into that. Yeah. Well, and here's the other thing. If I identify myself that way, then everyone thinks that I'm always thinking horrible about them, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not. Right. And and that's what I worry about with this sexual orientation stuff. Uh-huh. Like, it doesn't mean that if it's a male who is sexually attracted to males, that doesn't mean he's attracted to every single male he has a friendship with, you know? Mm-hmm. Same with heterosexual stuff. So, I mean, when you do that, it kind of, people start assuming that you're just attracted to everyone that's your same sex. Well, and it goes back to the point Carl made that, you know, in, in scripture, sex is not an identity. Certainly it has ramifications for who we are. It's an expression of part, mm-hmm. but who we're attracted to or, or that's not the stuff of our mm-hmm. identity. Now, now this brings up a question. And again, this is a point of controversy in the denomination that I serve in as well. The gay Christian lingo. Mm. You know, uh, gay Christian, LGBTQ Christian, queer Christian. There are some in my denomination that are comfortable and, and think it's helpful to use that terminology. Others like myself who believe that it's a real bad idea to use that terminology or, or for someone to call themselves a gay Christian. Let's unpack that a little bit more. Obviously, I believe it's a bad idea. Um, I won't be friends with someone yeah. who thinks it, think it's a good idea. So I no, I'm just kidding. But I, I assume that the three of us would agree that to one degree or another, that's less than helpful. One has to make some some distinctions when, when people start using right. that. But I, I think one, I'd want to ask the question of why do you want to use a term, the sole purpose of which seems to be identity, mm-hmm. and yet to be an identity that the Bible would not recognize as legitimate on that front. Uh, I think secondly, one needs to, again, make a distinction, but one is found guilty of sinful acts. Yeah. Is an orientation a sinful act? No, but an orientation is not therefore morally neutral. Right. It is to be resisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, is my is the tendency of heterosexual men to be attracted to women they're not married to, uh, are they going to be held to account for that? Well, they're going to be held to account for if they do not resist that and act upon it. But that does not mean that that, we might say, uh, promiscuous orientation is itself morally neutral. And I think that's a distinction that's often lost, that the, the gay Christian people seem to want to say that the orientation is morally neutral. Right. It's merely acting upon it that is that takes you into the realm of, of morality. And I would say, no, is somebody going to go to hell because they're same-sex attracted? 
No, but they will do if they persistently and unrepentantly act on that right. orientation. Right. But that doesn't mean that I am saying that the orientation itself is a morally neutral one. Right. Just because it is not strictly culpable in that sense mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it's morally neutral. And I think that's been the classic position of the church, Protestant and Catholic. Mm -hmm. I, I was talking to a Catholic friend recently about the way the Catholic position had been characterized in an online exchange. And, and her comment to me was the thing that this exchange misses is that while Catholics don't believe the orientation is culpable, mm -hmm. they do believe that orientation has a moral quality, in this case, a an immoral right, right. dimension to it. Yeah. So, and, and for those wondering out there who are, for instance, a part of the PCA where this is being talked about a lot now, historically, the Reformed really do have a position on this kind of thing, doctrine of concupiscence, where we differ with our Roman Catholic neighbors um, on this issue. And, and Carl kind of articulated a little bit there, the Roman Catholic position on, on these kinds of thoughts and, and orientations, lust, that kind of thing, is that you can be oriented this way and it not be a morally culpable sin. But it is a moral orientation. It, it, it's a moral That's, orientation. It's a moral, right. which is being dropped from the discussion. And that is true. That is true. The historically reformed position is that we begin sinning oftentimes before we're even consciously aware of it at times. And, and that a, quote, homosexual orientation is, by its very nature, sinful. It comes from a sinful place. And it would belong to those temptations from within. Yeah. And, and again, to go to a more general pastoral, what is the general pastoral advice for anyone struggling with any sin? Keep as far away from yes. it as possible. Yes. You know, somebody comes to me and says, I struggle, I'm, I'm a recovered alcoholic, and I struggle with the temptation to drink. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say, well, you know, it's, it's okay to go into a right. bar. Just don't get drunk. Right. I'm going to say to them, you know, you can go into, it's not sinful to go into a bar. It, it isn't, you know, you're not sinning by going to a bar, but you would be well advised mm -hmm. to stay as far away from bars as you possibly can. Exactly. Because to quote John Owen, if you're not killing sin, it'll be killing you. And you want to avoid these things like the play. Right. It's, it's why the wise Christian parent says to their 16-year-old son or their 16-year-old daughter, you're not going to have your boyfriend or girlfriend in our home without us being here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and by doing that, we're not treating them like an animal. We're treating them like a fellow sinner. Yeah. And so if somebody in my church comes to me and says, hey, you know, I was listening to this podcast or I was reading this article or I read this book and they were talking about, you know, spiritual friendship and it sounds, you know, it sounds really good, you know, same-sex couple can share an apartment, you know, enjoy things together, um, ha have a joint checking account, do all the kinds of things that a married couple does, but just abstain from sex, just remain celibate. That sounds like that might be an answer for me. I, I would beg them not to yeah. do that for the very reasons you brought up. I would say that I, I think that that is it's hanging around in a bar if yes. you're an alcoholic. Yes, I, I'd say yeah, I, I mean, think that's I would really agree unwise. With, with that, definitely. But that's where I think there's so much conversation that still needs to happen in this movement, if that's what you would call it, because I do think part of the reaction with those who are same-sex attracted is all of a sudden, like, who can they be around? Mm. Like, they're lonely, mm -hmm. yeah. you yeah. know, and, and, and that's a pastoral issue right there is like, how do you invite them into the family of God, deal with this well, and, and knowing how to properly orient our feelings and friendship is very important. Now, of course, 
if anyone's sexually attracted to someone else, like you said, that setup is, you wouldn't do that. But to have the common sense alongside of true redeemable qualities of brotherhood and sisterhood in Christ. and It's, and it's like abortion. It's not enough to say no. Mm-hmm. The church also has to say no, mm-hmm. but look at the alternative. Right. right. And this is where, you know, for instance, uh, in terms, again, of, of pastoral approaches, pastors need to do a really good job of declaring and interpreting well the first three chapters of, of Genesis, uh, grounding people in a real strong, uh, robust biblical anthropology. anthropology and a real strong, robust theology of, of sin mm-hmm. got to do that and eschatology i think because mm-hmm. and I, I believe this helps everyone involved in putting sex in proper perspective and sexuality in proper perspective is that what kind of sexual beings are we going to be on the new heavens and the new earth like we're not identified by just who we have sex with all the time or want to have sex with all the time and to have to be able to have that proper anthropology mm-hmm. And eschatology, I think they're both very important. And I feel like we've just begun (laughs) talking about this topic. And and there's so many more conversations that need to happen that I hope will happen. You know, you see things playing out on social media and there's a lot of anger and there's a lot of talking past one another, I think, in a lot of ways. And we do have some categories that are good to use and others that are not good to use and then tribes start forming here and here and there and and i hope to see some fruitful interaction within the church on these topics especially where pastors will really be involved in learning and integrating you know good ways to approach this topic pastorally in their church because this is going to be ongoing and as there's a lot of agreement even in the differences on sinful acts so just I hope to have some more fruitful conversation and maybe we'll cover it some more um, on the podcast as well, but we're going to have to end our conversation now. So I just want to thank the listeners for joining in today. Hopefully this was a fruitful conversation for some. I know I have a lot more questions and a lot more learning to do in this area. Stop on over our website, mortificationofspin.org. And while you're over at our website, we would love for you to enter to win a copy of Rosaria Butterfield's excellent book, Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, published by Crown and Covenant. We're a listener-supported podcast, so we really uh, covet and appreciate any donations. If you feel like you could donate to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, go on over there on our website and hit the green button for donating. And we just thank you once again for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Isn't it ironic that the supposedly subjective method of allegory that allows you to read anything you want into the text results in a stable, unified tradition that is coherent and enduring. And on the other hand, the scientific objective method that rescues you from the hopeless subjectivity of allegorizing results in a completely fragmented set of traditions that can't tell you what the Bible means as a whole. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of spin.
This podcast was underwritten in part by the NIV Biblical Theology Study Bible in Comfort Print, inviting you to follow God's redemptive plan as it unfolds throughout Scripture. D.A. Carson leads a team of 65 scholars that have contributed to over 20,000 study notes and 28 articles on biblical theology, helping you connect the dots of Scripture so you can see each of its major themes take shape. Three of these articles are posted online at whatisbiblicaltheology.com.